0: Hi, I'm Chris Green, the History Chap, telling stories that bring British history to life. 55 Days at Peking is the title of a 1963 Hollywood movie and is based upon a real historical event, the siege of the Foreign Diplomatic Quarter in Peking, now Beijing, during the Boxer Rebellion in 1900. The film, starring Charlton Heston, Ava Gardner and David Niven, is a swashbuckling period piece. But what are the real historical events and how close does the film come to them? This is the story of the Boxer Rebellion, an eight-nation army, and that siege that really did last for 55 days at Peking. China, at the end of the 19th century, was an empire in decline. European powers, plus the USA and Japan, were exploiting the country, with preferential trading deals, concession ports and spheres of interest. Many Chinese called them unequal treaties, not least because some of them were obtained through armed intervention, such as the two Opium Wars fought with the British and the French and the recent 1895 Sino-Japanese War. Inside China there was growing resentment at both the treaty provisions and the way they had been obtained. There was also hostility to westernisation, especially the work of missionaries who were the most obvious form of interference in traditional Chinese ways of life by these so-called foreign devils. Elsewhere, foreign imports on heavily beneficial terms to the foreigners And often the product of those unequal treaties also threatened local industries, for instance, the cotton industry in Shandong. And finally, a series of natural disasters, including droughts and floods, exacerbated both the suffering and, in turn, anti foreigner attitudes. China was a powder keg waiting to explode, and the explosion was coming. The Society of Righteous and Harmonious Fists appeared in 1898. Anti foreigner, anti imperialist, anti Christian, They practised martial arts, which gave them their nickname, the Boxers. By 1899, it had become a mass movement, and in the early months of 1900, converged on Peking, modern-day Beijing, attacking Chinese Christian converts and foreign priests en route, as well as destroying foreign property. Their slogan, support the Qing government and exterminate the foreigners, was a rallying cry that appealed to many throughout Chinese society. It also put that Qing government... In a quandary. Empress Dowager Sir Xi was the de facto ruler and had been so since 1861 when her five-year-old son had come to the throne. Now her nephew was on the throne but she remained the power in the land. Her conservative approach to challenges facing China clashed with the emperor's attempts to reform the country including moving towards something akin to a constitutional monarchy and now the dowager empress was confronted by an armed mass movement in the imperial capital. The Boxers were a threat to foreign nationals and Sir Xi didn't want foreign governments to be given excuse to intervene militarily. On the other hand, if the imperial government was seen to vacillate or even support foreign devils, their own grip on power could be challenged. Numerically, the foreign nationals in Peking were small, less than 1,000 mainly consisting of diplomats and their military protection in the legation quarter of the city. This area, measuring about one kilometre square, so about two-thirds of a mile, housed the diplomatic missions or legations from 11 nations, Great Britain, the USA, Germany, France, Austria-Hungary, Japan, Russia, Italy, Spain, Belgium and the Netherlands. As tensions in the city began to increase, concerns rose in that diplomatic community. The American minister asked his government to position a US warship off Tianjin 60 miles down the river from Beijing in case a fast exit was needed. And At the end of May, the British minister Sir Claude Maxwell MacDonald requested that the Dowager Empress agree to let foreign troops proceed to the city to defend their nationals. Reluctantly, the Empress agreed. Now, at this time, the Boxers had kept away from the diplomats, preferring to harass and attack the missionaries and their converts, of whom there were many thousands. On the 1st of June, a 435 strong, multinational force of sailors and marines arrived in Peking. Shortly after their arrival, the railway line back to the coast was cut by the Boxers. Things were starting to look ominous for the tiny group of foreigners in the Chinese capital. And they rapidly took a turn for the worse. On the 11th of June, 1900, the head of the Japanese legation, so effectively their ambassador, was killed in the city. What was most concerning was he wasn't killed by the Boxers, but by members of the Chinese army. Not only did this show that foreigners, no matter what their status, were no longer safe, but also that the Chinese authorities were starting to rally behind the Boxers' agenda. The troops in question were the Gangsu Army, also called the Gansu Braves. Comprising 10,000 Chinese Muslims armed with the latest Mauser rifles, they were under the command of General Dong Fushan, a committed nationalist and consequently an anti-foreigner. On the same day as the head of the Japanese legation had been murdered, the first boxer agitator was seen in the legation quarter itself. The German minister, Clemens von Ketteler, accompanied by six German marines, arrested him and promptly executed him on the spot. Word rapidly spread of the execution through the city and into the countryside beyond. Thousands of boxer supporters rampaged through Peking, burning churches. As they advanced on the legation quarters, soldiers at both the British and the German compounds opened fire. The infuriated boxers retaliated by hunting down Chinese Christians, killing them by the score. Even before these latest incidents, the fact that the railway line had been cut had set alarm bells ringing with the governments of the nations who had diplomatic missions in the Chinese capital. The very day before the violence erupted in Peking, a 2,000 strong force formed by military units from eight of these nations, the so-called Eight Nation Alliance, set out to reinforce their legations. It was commanded by British Admiral Edward Seymour. Seymour was a veteran of Royal Naval engagements in the Crimean War and the Second Opium War here in China. In that latter war, He had been present when the British forces under his uncle, Sir Admiral Michael Seymour, had stormed the Taku forts. Whilst his force consisted of nine hundred British sailors and soldiers, they were merely the largest of the minorities in this multinational army. There were also five hundred Germans, three hundred Russians, and one hundred and fifty French under his command. There were also one hundred and twelve Americans under the command of U.S. naval officer Arthur Macarthur III, whose brother Douglas would go on to play a massive role in both World War II and the Korean War. 50 Japanese, 40 Italians and 26 Austrians completed Admiral Seymour's army. Those Austrians were commanded by a 20-year-old officer, George von Trapp. Now, if that name doesn't mean very much to you, what if I said the sound of music? Yes, this is Captain von Trapp. Apart from the artistic license employed by Rogers and Hammerstein in the musical, the sound of music is based upon a true story and real people. So, if nothing else from this story, I bet you'll be humming songs from the musical after this episode. Anyway, back to Seymour's relief expedition. Having landed from various naval ships, the multinational force moved by rail 40 miles inland to Tianjing. At this stage, remembering that violence hadn't yet erupted in Peking, they did so with the grudging support of the Chinese government. This was to change in the next week. Seymour's expedition now found the railway line destroyed ahead of them. Not relishing the idea of marching 120 kilometres or 70 miles through the Chinese summer and potentially hostile territory, the Admiral decided to move forward by train, stopping wherever the railway had been cut to repair it before moving on again. The painfully slow advance was further hampered by increasing attacks from the Boxers, who had decided to take action against the foreigners, even if their government didn't. On the 14th of June, hundreds of Boxers attacked Seymour's force and in the ensuing battle, five Italians were killed along with over a hundred rebels. With their legations and now Seymour's expedition under attack from the Boxers, the Eight Nation Alliance decided to take further action. As in their eyes the Chinese government were not using their own army to put down the rebellion, they demanded that the Chinese place their army, as well as their finances, under foreign control. To show that they meant business, on the 16th of June, the alliance demanded the surrender of the Taku Forts, guarding the mouth of the high river, the waterway linking Peking, Beijing to the sea. Ten warships manoeuvred into the mouth of the river, with their guns aimed menacingly at the forts. The Chinese garrisons, unsurprisingly, refused and began to place mines in the river to prevent Allied ships proceeding inland to Tianjin. Just after midnight on the 17th of June, the Chinese forts opened fire on the Allied navy with every gun they had available inflicting severe damage on several of them, including a Russian warship that ran aground. At dawn, the Allies launched a ground assault on the forts. In a bitter struggle, 170 of the 900 attackers were killed or wounded, but by 6.30 a.m. the forts had been captured. No precise records exist as to how many of the 2,000 defenders died, but contemporary reports talk about the forts flowing with rivers of blood. The high-handed ultimatum, followed by the attack on the Taku Forts without any declaration of war, turned the dowager empress. She saw the ultimatum and the actions on the coast as revealing the Eight Nation Alliance's true colours. They didn't want to protect their diplomats in Peking. They wanted to carve up China, just like they had Africa. Still, some of her courtiers urged caution. It was, they said, madness to take on all eight nations at the same time. But the defiant 64-year-old Sir retorted, If we must perish, why don't we fight to the death? And she now threw her weight behind the boxers. On the 19th of June, the Dowager Empress ordered the legations to leave the capital within 24 hours. The German minister, Clemens von Ketteler, the man who had executed the boxer just over a week before, set out to the Imperial Palace to protest at the order. As he made his way through the capital, he was stopped by a Chinese army patrol. Incensed by the attacks on the Taku Forts, the officer commanding the patrol shot the German minister dead. It was now the turn of the diplomats to see the Dowager Empress's true colours. Forget the threat posed by the Boxers, the Chinese army themselves could massacre them all. There was no way they would trust the army to give them safe passage to the coast. There was only one alternative. The delegation quarter was fortified and throughout the day missionaries, businessmen and their families raced there from across the city. In response, Xuxi ordered the compound to be blockaded. The siege of the diplomatic legations was now on. It would last 55 days. 55 days at Peking. Inside this tiny area were 473 foreign civilians, including 149 women and 79 children, 409 soldiers, sailors marines and 3,000 Chinese Christians. A further 3,000 plus Roman Catholic Chinese were holed up in the nearby Catholic Cathedral protected by 43 Italian and French soldiers. Overall command of the defence was tasked to the British minister, Sir Claude MacDonald. It was MacDonald that David Niven's character in the film 55 Days at Peking is based upon, although in the movie Niven's character is for some reason called Sir Arthur Robertson. The 48-year-old Macdonald had formerly been in the army, being commissioned in the 74th Regiment of Foot in 1872 and going on to serve in the Anglo-Egyptian War under General Sir Garnet Wolseley. He'd been Her Majesty's Minister in China for the last four years. Here, during the Siege of Peking, his Chief of Staff was the Secretary to the US Legation, Herbert Squires. Like Macdonald, Squires was a former soldier turned diplomat and would later serve as the US Minister in both Cuba and Panama. It fell to the 409 sailors, marines and soldiers to defend a perimeter measuring over 2,000 yards through an urban landscape. They were joined by most of the male civilians. The defenders had to principally rely on small arms and three machine guns to hold their positions. An old muzzle-loading cannon constituted their only artillery. This ramshackle composite cannon comprised a barrel provided by the British, a carriage from the Italians, shells provided by the Russian contingent, and was crewed by US troops. Not surprisingly, it was nicknamed the International Gun. Two days into the siege, the Boxers set fire to the areas north and west of the British legation in hopes of frightening the foreigners into leaving. However, a change in the wind meant the flames turned and the fires consumed many Chinese buildings instead. Whilst a multinational defense, it effectively panned out that each nation would be responsible for defending their own legation. Thus, for instance, the Austro-Hungarians and the Italians spent most of their time defending their own most vulnerable compounds. Those nations with less exposed legations or with surplus men filled in the gaps and provided reinforcements when needed. The Japanese, for instance, under Colonel Shibagoro, defended the line through the Fu, a mansion with large gardens that was also housing hundreds of Chinese Christians. Meanwhile, the Germans and the Americans held key positions on top of the Tatar wall. Standing at 45 feet high and 40 feet wide, The Tartar wall towered over the legation compound and if the boxers could capture it they could rain rifle fire down onto the defenders below. The Chinese built barricades on the wall and slowly moved closer and closer to the German and American positions. Finally on the 30th of June, 10 days into the siege, an attack by 2,000 boxers forced the Germans to abandon their position. Now all they had to do was dislodge the Americans and the net would tighten on the legations below. The foreign defenders could either wait for the inevitable or take control of the situation. On the 3rd of July, they counter-attacked on the wall. The counter-attack was conducted by a joint force of Americans, British and Russians, commanded by US Marine Captain John Twig Myers. Born in 1872, Myers had joined the marines in 1895 as a second lieutenant. During the recent Spanish-American War, he had participated in the capture of the island of Guam in the Pacific, and then had served in the Philippine-USA war. He'd arrived in Peking in May 1900 to bolster the guard at the US legation. Captain John Myers is the character played by Charlton Heston in the film 55 Days at Peking, but once again his name was changed in the film to Major Matt Lewis. In the dead of night, he launched his counter-attack on the Chinese barricades. As planned, his men caught the Chinese completely by surprise, killing 20 and driving their confused comrades back. British minister and effective commander of the besieged garrison, Sir Claude MacDonald, later wrote that Myers' counter-attack was the most successful operation of the entire siege. Myers himself was injured during the attack when a Boxer defender had thrust a spear into his leg. He would spend the rest of the siege in the makeshift hospital set up in the legation compound. But the Boxers never captured the Tartar Wall above the legations. Meanwhile, where on earth was Admiral Seymour and his expedition? We'd left them on the 14th of June, having beaten off an attack by the Boxers. Well, since then, things have gone rapidly downhill. With the attack on the Taku Forts and the Dowager Empress declaring hostilities, although not declaring war, Seymour now had to deal with the Chinese government troops as well as the Boxers. And it didn't take long for those two forces to unite. On the 18th of June, his force were trying to repair the railway at Langfang when they were surrounded by 2,000 Boxers, supported by 3,000 Gansu braves from the Chinese army. In the ensuing Battle of Langfang, the Chinese forced Seymour to retreat. However, with 400 of their number killed, it had been a costly Chinese victory. That same day, Seymour received news that the legations were surrounded and under attack in Peking. He tried to force an alternative route past the Chinese, but once more he was stopped, and he was forced into a further retreat, with 200 or 10% of his expedition force wounded. Low on food, ammunition and medical supplies, Seymour decided that his only option was to dig in and send a message back to the coast requesting urgent support. Despite having come ashore and taken the Taku Forts, it took a while for the Eight Nation Alliance to organise a relief force to rescue Seymour's relief force. Finally on the 25th of June they reached Seymour and their arrival wasn't a moment too soon. His position had nearly been overrun by the Chinese and it was only the discovery of a Chinese munitions cache that enabled his men to hold out. Destroying what remained of the arms cache and spiking his guns, Seymour and the relief column headed back to the coast, unopposed. So by a week into the siege, the defenders of the legation compound in Peking were no nearer rescue. Indeed, the relief expedition had in itself needed to be rescued. Things weren't looking good for the defenders in Peking. On the 13th of July, 10 days after Captain Myers had secured the Tartar Wall, the Boxers, joined by the Chinese army, launched a ferocious attack on the compound. In what MacDonald later called the most harassing day of the siege, the Italians and Japanese troops were pushed back to their last line of defence, and the French had to abandon most of their legation after the Chinese detonated a mine underneath it. Now, you might be wondering why the Chinese army didn't just bombard the legations into submission. Or, simply combine forces with the Boxers and attack in overwhelming numbers? The answer is that despite the Dowager Empress's belligerent stance, the Chinese leadership was split between doves and hawks. Prince Duan, the cousin of the Emperor, was an anti-foreigner, anti-imperialist. He saw the Boxers as an ideal opportunity to rid China of foreign influence. Meanwhile, senior military commander General Roglu firmly believed that taking on eight nations was likely to end in disaster. Even the Dowager Empress herself, whilst willing to attack the Eight Nation Alliance who'd stormed the Taku Forts, never officially issued an order to attack the legations in Peking. Consequently, there was no joined-up thinking from the Chinese government or army. Thus, whilst Prince Duan encouraged General Dong Fushang and his Gansu Braves to attack the relief expeditions and the legation, General Roglu withheld the imperial decree authorising attacks on the foreign armies from his own armies in the field. Moreover, he refused to press home attacks on the legation and specifically refused to send artillery to Dongfushang in Peking. The siege of the legations and the retreat of Admiral Seymour had raised the Boxer Rebellion up the agenda across the world. While some of the world's strongest nations feared for the lives of their nationals in Peking and the embarrassment if they didn't rescue them. Many watched and wondered if the boxers were to prevail in Peking then the movement could sweep across China endangering more foreign nationals and business interests. So both for the immediate situation and for the bigger picture the legations had to be relieved and the rebellion put down. And as it was obvious the Chinese government were either unwilling or unable to do so it would require direct military intervention from the Eight-Nation Alliance. A new, much larger expedition was assembled. Over 20,000 men would march on Peking. Whilst the film focuses on the Americans and the British involvement, nearly half of this new force were actually provided by the Japanese. Yet, even though the Japanese provided 10,000 troops and the most senior commander on the coast was Japanese, it seems that the Eight-Nation Alliance wasn't necessarily an equitable alliance. Command was, instead, given to a British general, Alfred Gesley. With nearly 40 years military service, he had principally served in the British Indian Army and had combat experience from Britain's war in Abyssinia, modern-day Ethiopia, at the Battle of Magdala, and on India's northwest frontier. Indeed, the bulk of his British contingent, numbering 3,000 men, were Indian troops, mainly Sikhs and Rajputs. Also in his so-called Gasly Expedition were 4,000 Russians, 800 French, 200 Germans, 100 Austrians and a similar number of Italians. The final contingent was made up of 2,000 US troops under a veteran of the American Civil War, the Indian Wars and the recent Spanish-American War, Colonel Adna Chaffee. Chaffee's son would go on to be a pioneer of American tank warfare and lend his name to the M24 Chaffee tank in World War II. On the 14th of July, the day after that most harassing day in Peking, General Gasly's force defeated the Boxers outside the city of Tianjin. The city and its small number of foreign residents had been besieged by the Boxers and it took a vicious battle at Tinsing to lift the siege. Now, despite the fact that the Japanese had been overlooked when it came to overall command of the column, they took the brunt of the casualties over half of the 750 allied losses as the siege was lifted. The foreigners inside emerged mostly unscathed from their experience. Amongst their numbers was an American mining engineer in his mid-twenties by the name of Herbert Hoover. He would go on to become the 31st President of the USA. With the capture of Tianjin, the army of the Eight Nation Alliance were now just 120 kilometres or 70 miles from Peking, Beijing. The advance was through the humid summer heat with temperatures hitting 42 degrees Celsius, that's about 108 degrees Fahrenheit, and water was scarce. The march towards Peking was marred by atrocities on both sides, with Allied soldiers, especially the Russian Cossacks and the Japanese, indulging in rape and beheadings. Likewise, the boxers and their supporters in the countryside dosed out equally macabre acts on the Allied soldier who fell into their hands. Soldiers who wandered from the column, often searching for water, were killed, often after torture. And the Chinese seemed to keep their worst tortures for the Russians. No love was lost on either side. Two more minor battles were fought with the boxers as they closed in on the Chinese capital. The first at Biankang once more saw the Japanese take the bulk of Allied casualties, whilst at the next encounter, at the Battle of Yangkung, it was the British and Americans who led the assault on the Chinese lines. With time now running out for the Chinese besiegers in Peking, artillery was finally brought into action against the legation quarter on the 13th of August. The British legation and the FU bore the brunt of this bombardment, but amazingly, no infantry attack was made. Indeed, one of the strange things about the siege was that whilst there was some bitter fighting, there was never an all-out attack on the quarter. And if there had been, it's hard to see how the defenders could have held out. Nevertheless, that's history. In the early hours of the 14th of August, the defenders of the legations heard machine gun fire to the east of the city. And by 5 a.m. this was joined by the crump of artillery shells. Relief was at hand. General Gasly decided to launch a four-pronged attack on the city to break through to the legation quarter. He drew up plans for the Russians, Japanese, British and Americans, who contributed the four largest forces, to each storm four separate gates at dawn. The Americans arrived at their appointed gate only to find the Russians had decided to attack it. They moved away and decided to assault the actual walls of the city. When a volunteer was called for to climb the wall, trumpeter Calvin Titus shouted, I'll try, sir. And proceeded to scale the 30-foot wall. At 11.03 am he planted the US flag on top of the wall and the rest of the 14th Infantry Regiment followed him. Meanwhile the Russians were ironically held up at the gate which the Americans should have been storming and likewise the Japanese were facing stubborn resistance at their gate. In complete contrast the British and Indian forces passed through their gate with only the slightest resistance. As the Allies at varying speeds broke into the city, the race was now on to be the first to reach the legation quarter. The French raced into the city, only to get lost. The honour ultimately fell to the British, who waded through the fetid water the appropriately named Watergate to enter the quarter. At 2.30, General Gasly was greeted by Minister Sir Claude Macdonald, dressed in immaculate tennis trousers. (laughs) David Niven would have been proud of him. By 4.30, the British had been joined by the Americans With the other nations entering in the evening. The siege at the foreign legations at Peking had lasted 55 days. It had also cost the lives of 55 of the defenders and a further 135 wounded which is a 46% casualty rate. A further 13 civilians had also been killed. Away from the compound 230 missionaries and their families had also been killed by the boxers along with over 30,000 Chinese Christians. Interestingly, whilst the Legation Quarter was relieved on the 14th of August. It wasn't until the 16th that the Christians in the Roman Catholic Cathedral and the small garrison of Italian and French soldiers guarding them were rescued. With Allied troops in the capital, the Dowager Empress fled to the safety of Xiang. Over the coming months, more and more troops from the Eight Nation Alliance arrived in northern China until there were something like 80,000 of them in the country. Now whilst the Boxers had killed thousands, principally their own countrymen, The Allies went on an equally brutal rampage. Public beheadings were routine, executions abounded, livestock shot, crops destroyed, women raped, homes looted. No nation was immune to dishing out this brutal behaviour, although journalists at the time tended to point their fingers at the Germans, the Russians and the Japanese in particular. The case against the Germans wasn't helped when the German Kaiser famously dispatched his troops, telling them to be remembered like Attila and his Huns. Those words would come back to haunt him in the First World War, when his own people were commonly called the Huns. Whilst Peking had been damaged by fire and artillery shells, mainly during the siege, there were enough properties in the city to be looted. Many Westerners, even at the time, were horrified by the behaviour of their troops. Mark Twain famously called the Boxers Patriots. The armies of the Eight Nation Alliance remained in northern China for the next year until the Dowager Empress signed a peace treaty, the Boxer Protocol, in September 1901. In the treaty, the Chinese promised to pay reparations for the next 39 years. But even now, Shixi was defiant, refusing the Allied demand to execute General Dong Fushang. The Chinese never did pay the full reparations as they were cancelled in the Second World War. And by then, China was allied with most of those eight nations against Japan, the nation who'd supplied the bulk of the troops and borne the brunt of the casualties back in 1900. It's strange how history weaves its course. And what of some of the other characters we've met in this story? Well, Admiral Sir Edward Seymour, despite his expedition's defeat, returned to England and a hero's welcome in Portsmouth. He retired as a full admiral in 1910 and died in Maidenhead, Berkshire in 1929. Captain John Twiggs Myers of the US Marines would serve in the First World War and retired with the rank of Major General in 1934. Shortly after his service in Peking, he was posted to Morocco during the Tangier Incident in 1904 and a character based upon him appears in the film The Wind and the Lion. Sir Claude MacDonald would end up becoming British ambassador to Japan, whilst Japanese colonel Shibogoro, whom he had worked closely with during the siege and who had held the crucial defensive position at the Foo, would become military attaché to Britain. He was still alive at the end of World War II and committed suicide when Japan surrendered. The Dowager Empress, Sir Xi, died in November 1908, the day after her nephew, the Emperor. On her deathbed, she nominated two-year-old Puyi to succeed to the throne. He would be the last Emperor. <laughs> but that's another film for another story. As for the film about the siege of the diplomatic legations in Peking during the Boxer Rebellion, 55 Days at Peking. well. It's both of its time and yet another example of Hollywood playing fast and loose with history. It nevertheless does introduce viewers to a period in history that isn't often taught at school and it does have some cracking performances from David Niven and Charlton Heston. Heston also starred in another film about 19th century history when he played General Charles Gordon in Khartoum. I've talked that story in the past and you might want to check it out in a moment and understand the history behind the film. I've also recently told the story of David Niven's military service in World War II. Check out my past episodes including those ones about General Charles Gordon and David Niven, numbers 47 and 89 respectively. If you're enjoying my work then please sign up for my free newsletter. There's a link in the description below. I'm Chris Green, the History Chap. Thanks for joining me today. Keep well and I'll speak to you very soon.